Wine and Crime contains graphic and explicit content which may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Maggie Freeling. I'm an investigative journalist and I'm excited to tell you about my new podcast from the Obsessed Network called Unjust and Unsolved. Each episode tells the story of a person who I believe has been wrongfully incarcerated. The Innocence Project gives a conservative estimate that there are over 20,000 innocent people locked away in U.S. prisons. When I learned this, I sent letters to those whose stories haunted me. I heard back from almost everyone. They all wanted to be heard. And so on Unjust and Unsolved, I'm doing just that. I speak with those people, their loved ones, advocates, and lawyers, diving deep into the crimes they were convicted of and presenting the evidence that points away from them. And if it wasn't them, then who was it? Help me search for an answer. You can find Unjust and Unsolved and all Obsessed Network podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Listening to Wine and Crime, the podcast where three friends chug wine, chat true crime, and unleash their worst Minnesotan accents. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And we got a tweet recently from someone being like, My mom said that you didn't sound very Minnesotan to her. And I was like, She needs to get her hearing checked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What? Well, it's not always out in full force. Yeah, mm-hmm. it goes in and out, but it's real. <laughs> it's re- it's here. It is here to stay. Um, I'm Kenyon. I'm Lucy. I'm Amanda. Yeah, we're still here. <laughs> this episode, we have a very special fan pick, and I'm surprised we haven't done this topic yet. Hard before. same. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the topic brought to you by Jeannie O'Brien is... Fashion crimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and not just my mullet and eye patch and macrame uh, teddy bear sweater from kindergarten. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, we're talking about other crimes, actual crimes involving fashion. I think the real title of this episode is Fashion Victims. Yeah. Or murderers. I like fashion victims better. Fashion mm-hmm. victims. Good, because half of my notes is specifically about the phrase fashion victims. Good. <laughs> Great. Good. <laughs> Make it work. And the only other thing that Jeannie um, specified was not Versace. So we're yeah. not covering the Versace case, although that is wild. Yeah. Also, yeah. though, if you're interested in it, cannot recommend the book Vulgar Favors highly enough. Oh, mm. it's one of your absolute favorites. It's so fucking good. I God. need to order that. I'm writing that down. Ugh, I'll lend it to you. My uh, case is definitely like Versace adjacent without ever saying Versace. 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 Mm-hmm. Martin Versace. Patrick Versace. <laughs> <laughs> Martin and Patrick Versace, they're brothers. They're brothers um, driving me crazy. They are brilliant filmmakers. <laughs> okay, let's get to the alcohol. Amanda, yes, please. What, what is our wine crime pairing for fashion victims? Yes. 
Well, Jeannie also recommended a great wine that is available at my sort of local uh, wine shop, Certix, which is over oh, in Northeast Minneapolis. Very I good. love Certix. They also have a great also, cheese and like say. a little deli. Oh, yeah, if so you want to put together a little, little mm-hmm. b- board. A charcuterie board. Uh-huh. Why not? Um, but you can also get it at Total Wine. So there you go. This is the Cashmere Red Blend made by the Klein Winery out of sort of the Sonoma region of California, which like, doy, cashmere. I'm wearing cashmere. So good. Soup's cash. Soup's cash. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And this red is a blend of Morverde, Syrah, and Grenache, so three absolute faves. And these three combine for seductive flavors of cherry and blueberry intermingled with secondary notes of black pepper and cooking spice. So it's like hitting all of my absolute Mm -hmm. boxes. Um, The majority of the grapes for the 2018 vintage that we are drinking come from their vineyards in Contra Costa County. Contra Costa County. (laughs) Don't be a Contra. (laughs) I can't. I can't. Um, The Morverde vines are planted in sandy soil and are dry farmed, providing luscious notes of chocolate and cherry. Mm. The Grenache comes from three vineyards in Oakley, where grape clusters are meticulously thinned to concentrate the flavors in the fruit. Much like fashion models are meticulously thinned to concentrate (laughs) on the items that they are displaying on the catwalk. Mm -hmm. Cool-grown Sonoma Syrah provides rich berry character and good tannin structure. She clocks in at 14.5% ABV, another nice Hi, Roller. (laughs) Hardy. Hardy wine. Just what the doctor prescribed. Yeah. (laughs) And this beauty is a popper, so I'm going to need y'all to reach for your nice pop wine keys. And if you do not have one in hand or in pocket or betwixt your knees, head to... (laughs) wineandcrimepodcast.bigcartel.com to purchase one along with any of our other amazing merch that we recently added to the store like Gossip at the Corpse Cart sweatshirts, mm-hmm. fucking, fucking patriarchy, patriarchy leggings, leggings pet bandanas, yeah. and much, much more to come in time for the holiday season. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wouldn't you know it? It's like I rehearsed this or something. <laughs> But you did it. But I actually did it because when do I ever prepare that much in advance? Somebody asked me my once if we rehearsed every episode, and no. I laughed in their face. I don't. We rehearse how we're going to ask each other for more time to finish our notes. Yeah, I have no desire to do this more than once. Yeah. Oh my god, if we rehearsed. No, be, it would kill everything. We would kill the podcast. We've been rehearsing for the last. 18 to 25 years. This is a sketch yeah. comedy show mm-hmm. loosely written. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, shall we pop? Let's yeah. do it. Okay, here we go. And... Oh! Trendy pop. Yeah, hear the chocolate and the cherries on that oh, pop. So trendy. I love so it. So hungry. <laughs> All right, Lucy, what is our background and maybe psych for fashion victims? I really hope there's psych. Shockingly, there is psych. We'll get yes. to it. Yes. So there's this- got to be like consumer psychology. Yeah, oh. we'll get to it. Okay, good. Good, good. So this first part is just lifted straight from Wikipedia because, frankly, it's just a good overview. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. 
Fashion is a popular aesthetic expression at a particular time and place and in a specific context, especially in clothing, footwear, lifestyle, accessories, makeup, hairstyle, and joy, body proportions. God damn it. Ugh, fuck that. I would have a completely different life and set of emotional issues if I had been born a century earlier. Well, Mm -hmm. you see these beautiful Renaissance paintings of these like Mm -hmm. voluptuous voluptuous women with Mm -hmm. these like hips and these stomachs. And you're like, I look like that, but why do I feel so bad about myself? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's great. It's fun. Oh, it's great. Anyway. Whereas a trend often connotes a peculiar aesthetic expression and often lasting shorter than a season, fashion is a distinctive and industry-supported expression traditionally tied to the fashion season and collections. Style, on the other hand, is an expression that lasts over many seasons and is often connected to cultural movements and social markers, symbols, class, and culture for example, Baroque, Rococo, like those are styles. That makes all of that makes sense. And that is a that is a good overview. It's a very succinct, makes sense mm-hmm. overview. I could mm-hmm. go for a cup of hot Rococo right now. Oh, <laughs> with hot raw marshmallows. I wish yes. I wasn't so Baroque. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. According to sociologist Pierre Bourdieu. Fashion connotes, quote, the latest fashion and the latest difference. So fashion kind of hinges more on, like, the turning of the tides, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whereas trends are, like, Real maybe, the, like, the shorter-lived, just kind of more obnoxious things. Sure. <laughs> and then style is, like, over many Jackie years. Right. Yeah. Timeless. Mm-hmm. Like, my style is just black head to toe. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. neither fashion nor a trend. It's just an expression of my inner sanctum of my soul. And my style is to avoid seasons. buttons or zippers at all costs. Mm-hmm. Or like non-stretchy seams. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even though they are often used together, the term fashion differs from clothes and costumes, whereas the first, meaning clothes, describes the material and technical garment, whereas the second, meaning costume, has been relegated to special senses like fancy dress or masquerade wear. Mm -hmm. Fashion Mm -hmm. instead describes the social and temporal system that activates dress as a social signifier in a certain time and context. This is really getting into it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Philosopher Giorgio Agamben connects fashion to the current intensity of the... (laughs) Bear with me because it actually makes sense. Okay. Okay. Connects fashion to the current intensity of the qualitative moment. Oh, God. To the temporal aspects, which the Greek called kairos, whereas clothes belong to the quantitative or to what the Greek called chronos. So you can hmm. count the number of clothes in your wardrobe, but one's fashion is d- descriptive and more of a adjective than a noun. Yeah. So fashion sort of applies to the, to, well, as it says here, the quality, the Mm -hmm. vibe, the emotion of a moment in time in our culture versus Mm -hmm. clothes. Like I have six shirts. Right. 
things can be in the French fashion, in mm-hmm. the whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But clothes are a, yeah. an item that you can hold in your hand. Mm-hmm. That you clean out after you binge Marie Kondo and then you go out Ugh. and just buy more. Yep. Mm-hmm. We'll get to that as well. Mm-hmm. Historically, fashion has evolved or not evolved over time much differently depending on geography and access to other cultures. So, for example, in Europe, we can tell from documents beginning in the 14th century. And really, the 14th century is sort of when we were able to have much of a grasp on this because the manuscripts, the artwork, all that kind of stuff didn't before that time wasn't really that descriptive. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, So the 14th century is really when people started kind of taking note of like, oh, I should probably kind of show future scholars what it was actually like here. Mm -hmm. Also, I think um, after the plague, there were rules and laws put in place for what people were allowed to wear based on their social status. Mm. So like. Yeah, so after the Black Death, there were, you know, so few peasants to, like, till the land that their wages had to go up because supply was low, you know? Mm-hmm. So peasants were making more money and had more freedom and whatever, and so they were starting to become, like, a little bit of a middle class, which had not existed, really. Oh, and yeah. So they were buying, like, silks and furs and, and stuff, and laws were put in place being like, no, 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 no. Only nobles can wear silk. Only nobles can wear the color purple. Mm-hmm. Like, get the fuck out of here. Okay, so those kinds of rules. So I'll, I'll kind of get to that. Actually, let's just circle back to that once I'm finished with this. Okay. Okay, so in Europe, we can tell from documents beginning in the 14th century that the most dramatic early change was a sudden drastic shortening and tightening of the male overgarment from calf length to barely covering the buttocks. So basically, Ooh. they went from like, Men wearing dresses, long tunics mm-hmm. to sh- shirts, mm-hmm. sometimes accompanying with accompanied with stuffing in the chest to make it look bigger, and then little spindly legs, <laughs> tiny little thin legs. This created the distinctive Western outline of a tailored top worn over leggings or trousers. So that oh. was actually the big. Uh, that was a big shift. Yeah. That's interesting. interesting. Mm-hmm. That like is very much still alive today. Oh, the yeah. 80s really took that seriously. <laughs> Just everyone was a triangle. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Giant chest, spindly legs, mm-hmm. tight, tight le- leggings on mm-hmm. men. But that was like the start of like what we would call like the most basic outfit regardless of gender. Sure. Mm-hmm. In the 15th century, fashion began to differ between the classes, in particular across the upper classes. So, uh, Kenyon, I think this is what you were kind of saying. Um, I didn't get too far into this, but yes, the fashion began to differ. Like, you could tell just because of w- what some somebody's wearing, how wealthy they were. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it was necessarily the peasants trying to emulate the, like, super rich people as much as it was the middle, upper middle class trying to emulate the super rich people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like you said, this was sort of the beginning of a middle class. Mm-hmm. And then there are also like academic scholars arguing that that friction between the middle bourgeoisie and like the upper class, like constantly trying to emulate the upper class style mm-hmm. is actually what drives fashion 
as an idea in the first place. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Same thing with like baby names. Mm-hmm. The <laughs> middle class copies the upper class baby names, and then the upper class baby names are like, oh, that's so overdone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The pores are using it. Oh, yeah. Lord. And then they switch and it just keeps cycling. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So that that happens because of this <laughs> friction between rich people and not as rich people, mm-hmm. which is absurd. So also around this time, different countries began to have distinct fashions as well. And this peaked in the 16th century. So like you could easily tell a German person from a Danish person based on the style of hat that they're wearing. Mm-hmm. Cool. Which is like obviously not as much of a thing anymore, but it was like a super thing in the 16th century. Yeah. I want to bring also, back I mean, hats. <laughs> <laughs> Most clothes were made locally. Mm-hmm. You know, like you could make, even fabrics were mostly made locally. There wasn't like as much trade or it was like very expensive. And there wasn't even, you know, if you think about how the internet and like publicity has changed the fashion industry so that different regions can actually learn and yeah. adopt from each other, whereas previously it was so closed off because unless you were like a trader and you're bringing back some goods, right. you're not really seeing what somebody else is wearing on a different continent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're not changing it. You're not, there's not fast fashion. You're not changing right. out your clothes constantly. And like, yeah, it's mm-hmm. just so, it's just completely different. Yeah. So globally, it seems like things sort of picked up fashion-wise in the 16th and 17th centuries. Early Western travelers to Asia and the Middle East noted that there didn't seem to be a change in fashion over time, at least not as rapidly as it is in Europe at this time. The biggest changes in clothing came during times of economic or social change, followed by long periods of stagnation when it comes to, to fashion. Mm-hmm. Or maybe the changes were so subtle that those early Western travelers didn't couldn't, notice. Didn't yeah, couldn't pick up on them as well. Uh-huh. I think um one the one example that I read was specifically in Japan, where they were they seemed to be proud of the fact that they'd retained their traditional clothing from their ancestors for so long mm-hmm. that 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 was the goal. It wasn't yeah. to have changing, evolving right. styles. Right. It was like look at how beautiful this garment is that Mm -hmm. has been passed down for centuries. Exactly. That's so cool. Also various invasions when new types of dress would be introduced to previously unexposed societies. From what I read, like the Turks played a big role in spreading different clothing styles to different areas of the globe, Hmm. which was kind of interesting. Um, A big exception here is countries in West Africa where cloth was used as a form of currency with the Portuguese and the Dutch. So inexpensive European imports were coming into West Africa and combined with locally produced cloth to dress the growing elite class, Mm -hmm. which unfortunately this class was largely built on human trafficking and gold mining. But Mm -hmm. there was still a growing elite class where there Mm -hmm. hadn't really been that sort of socioeconomic structure before. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of... um how am I blanking on the term for it? But there were like African cloth patterns that were then picked up by the Dutch and incorporated into like Dutch fashion. And then mm-hmm. when the Dutch colonized other parts of Asia, like Indonesia and stuff, they brought versions of those African patterns. Just a fuck ton of appropriation happening. Well, yeah, but then those patterns now are are 
you know, centuries later are now considered like Indonesian. Right. But they actually have roots in Africa. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. And would it really be counted as appropriation if it was like purely f- functional? Well, it's also colonization. So yeah. It's like, right. Yeah. It's a, a, a next level. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, appropriation is probably too light a term for, <laughs> right, for right, right, right. their stealing of that Like the culture. cloth itself was functional in that moment, but the you reason why they if you didn't were come and in steal their Indonesia land. in the first yep, place is, there it is the more fucked up part. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm talking more about like the styles and right. the, fa- yeah, the, the patterns used. Mm. How, am I, how am I blinking on the, this word? Whatever. Somebody is screaming it into their headphones right now. <sighs> okay, well, maybe it'll come to you. While textile colors and patterns changed relatively rapidly, the cuts and patterns of clothing evolved more slowly. So men's attire were frequently modeled after military outfits, for example. Mm. Mm. In 1858, English-born Charles Frederick Worth opened the Haute House in Paris, which was the first fashion house of its kind. So these were literally regulated by the government in order to ensure that they kept up to industry standards, such as keeping at least 20 employees engaged in making the clothes, showing two collections per year at fashion shows, and presenting a certain number of patterns to costumers. Wow. That's a lot of requirements. Yeah. So like Paris just took it really, really fucking seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, so today, major designers still showcase their haute couture collections, but subsidize those collections with ready-to-wear collections and perfumes using the same branding. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay, I just looked it up. The word is batik. Mm. And I, oh, was, yeah. I was wrong and went the other way around. Started in Indonesia and Java, was brought by the Dutch to West Africa, oh. and then informed new types of African prints. Sorry, my bad. Cool. And batik is like sort of, it's not tie-dyed, but it's like, it's, it's like. It's it's very colorful. Yeah, vibrant. And it's like re- repeating um, patterns, a lot of geometric patterns. Mm-hmm. Sometimes mm-hmm. it'll be like, you know, flowers, but a lot of like repeating vibrant patterns. Colorful, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm a fan. Mm-hmm. Okay, so go, getting to the term fashion victim. <laughs> it supposedly was coined by Oscar de la Renta. Hmm. Nice. So it is used to identify a person who is unable to identify commonly recognized boundaries of style. Mm -hmm. This, again, mostly taken from this Wikipedia page, but it's just so overwrought. It's just, just, uh, you just have to hear it. It's just ridiculous. Fashion victims are victims because they are vulnerable to faddishness and materialism, two Mm -hmm. of the widely recognized excesses of fashion, and consequently are at the mercy of society's prejudices or of the commercial interests of the fashion industry, or both. Mm. Why not both? According to Versace, when a woman alters her look too much from season to season, she becomes a fashion victim. Okay. (laughs) Designer labels are an important component of identification of fashion. Wearing the right brand. Oh, I'm reading it like this, but I wrote this myself. (laughs) (laughs) Wearing the right brands. Wearing the right brands can open doors to social acceptance. For this reason, a lot of brands have moved their labels from the outside or from the inside to the outside of clothing. So Mm. basically Dorit's entire wardrobe on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. 
I also mm-hmm. distinctly remember being in like se- sixth or seventh grade and this very specific T-shirt from the limited two oh. was growing in popularity among the high class of <laughs> Minnetonka Middle School West. Did it have a daisy on the front? It didn't have a daisy on the front. It was literally just a long sleeved, like colorful T-shirt of mm-hmm. like a plain color that said limited two in like bedazzled Amazing. Um, it was just rhinestones on the front. Yeah. That just uh, spelled limited too. For girls whose older sisters could shop at BB. At the limited. <gasps> BB. Oh, mm-hmm. BB was good too. Yep. Wet Seal. Oh. <laughs> what a terrible name. I know. Who but was it was like, cool. yes, let's name our brand Wet, Wet Seal. seal. <laughs> I don't. Uh, no notes. But I was uh, all uh, up in that Wet Seal. Several uh, notes, but also no notes. I was, uh, I yearned for Abercrombie. You uh, could were. not afford. <laughs> Who could? Ugh, not I, said the fly. Did you ever get the limited two shirt? Oh, I did. It did not make me more popular, though. <laughs> Can confirm. Were you a fashion victim? Most likely, yes. I mean, <laughs> more so in high school, but yes. I feel like by the time I finally bothered my mom enough to buy me those kinds of things, it was definitely last season. Mm. <laughs> I remember desperately begging. I think I've said this on the podcast before, but Air my- walks. No, my godmother used to, we had a little tradition where she would buy me my first day of school outfit every year and we would go shopping for it together. It was so cute. Jessica Simpson, yellow pumps. Oh, okay. I was a full adult at that point and I so regret that I didn't buy those. <laughs> no, I. so I was like maybe 11, I think. And I had seen in the Delia's catalog. Oh, these I elephant pant yes. jeans yeah. with yes. flames, yeah. huge flames yeah. embroidered up the sides. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I wanted them so desperately. And it was the only time my godmother has ever like said no to me. She mm-hmm. was just like, I can't. can't. <laughs> 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 Aren't you glad? Thank you, Chris. Yep. I'm sending Chris a card. No, <laughs> I I was like an exclusively Delia's gal for years. Oh, so good, yeah. Dillard's, yeah. Delia, what was the other one that's not Delia's? Who's the other one? No, Dillard's is a department store. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't sound so sad. <laughs> I remember in fifth, no, it was sixth grade. Someone we went to school with whose names rhymes with Ch- Chalik's Charity. Mm-hmm. Okay. She had a y- bright orange, like, elephant, like, baggy, like, Aaliyah mm-hmm. kind of oh, pants. Oh, yes. Girl looked like she was in a music video. Good yeah. stuff. With, Good like, stuff. a really tight Abercrombie t-shirt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, Giant like, the pants Doc and little baby tees. Oh, were... that was the look. Yeah. I was obsessed. <laughs> Smelly Ford also wore a lot of those Smelly kinds of outfits. <laughs> True. Yes. Uh, she only showed her midriff. Mm-hmm. I, Which, I can picture her midriff better than I can picture her face. Also same, same but also uh, here for it ahead of the times. Uh, maybe that's who influenced my obsession with crop tops. I maybe. think so. And I okay. think I've tracked yeah. it. Yeah. So a fashion victim Able to recognize this phenomenon, but unable to determine its boundary. They've talked about boundaries so much. 
may become a walking billboard. Mm. Fashion victims, by their characteristic inability to recognize boundaries, may aspire to the extreme end of what is available, seeking expensive products or copies of these products, believing that the outward display of such items will draw admiration in proportion to their actual or apparent cost. Because mm-hmm. of this, the term fashion victim became the ultimate insult to the aspirational. Oh. I wonder what Dorit would say if she knew that this was quite literally describing her. <laughs> <sighs> she does not know her boundaries. Nope. I need to look up this person. Yeah, you do. Uh, Dorit. I mean, I love her. I'm not going to lie. Was it the one where she's gluing crystals to her face? Yes. Something happens? Um, Not crystals. Pearls. Oh, yes. She's gluing pearls to her face. Unbelievable. Okay. Believe it or not, there is such a thing as a fashion psychologist who I should recommend to Dorit. Mm-hmm. So this is a quote from Dr. Carolyn Mayer, a cognitive psychologist who created the psychology of fashion department at the London College of Fashion at the University of Arts in London. My gourd. <laughs> the fashion industry is about people. It employs millions worldwide and everyone wears clothes. Clothes are the closest thing to our bodies. They're our second skin. And psychologists can help with the loss of issues that are known to be caused by the fashion industry. So, for example, the fashion industry has a poor reputation in terms of social responsibility and is now coming to a head. And it's been around for four decades, actually, as are issues about sustainability. By the way, this is a transcript from a podcast, so it sounds kind of jerky. Mm A little choppy. You got Mm -hmm. this. You're making it sound delicate. Oh, thank you. So the fashion industry is one of the one of the worst industries for damaging the environment and psychologists can help with this. They can help with the consumers to change their habits through developing behavior change programs. They can also work with employers to help them create workspaces that provide better conditions for their staff. And they can also help in predicting demand so there is far less waste than the items that, mm. uh, when the items are actually made, mm-hmm. which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, maybe we should stop making... Fast fashion? F- yeah, and sizing, like... Uh, also, I've aged out of a lot of these brands, but like H&M sizing. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. What? No, no. Well, the most hell? sizing for like cis women is so all over the place. It's where so all I feel over like the place and it's increasingly dominated men. by like body sizes in um, Asia. Yeah. Like average body sizes in Asia, which mm-hmm. are not the same as average body sizes in the West. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, cis men's fashion, like, sizing is much more standardized. Well, Mm -hmm. I uh, was talking to a cis man recently about pant sizes, Mm -hmm. and uh, I was he's like, oh, yeah, I wear a 34. And I was like, what is that? I don't know what that means. He's like, 34 inches. I'm like, it's seriously that fucking straightforward for you people? Yeah. Length and width. There's two numbers that they need to fucking know. That's yeah. ridiculous. It's so frustrating. And they're not random numbers. Nope. They're actual Inches. proportion. Yep. Yeah. They yeah. don't change every single store that you walk into. Mm-hmm. Granted, this is a generalization and there are obviously going to be some, uh, you know, some differences. But just from the perspective of cis women mm-hmm. versus the perspective of our partners who are cis men, it's much more simplified for their fashion industry than it is for ours. I mm-hmm. have clothing. I have a I have a dress that is a size six. Yep. That fits me decently. And I have a size 
dress that is a 14 and it fits yep. me the yep. same way. Literally yep. same. I That's have six. Basically the same range. Yeah. Anything between a six and a, and like an eight, like a 16 in my closet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have between like eight and 16. Unreal. It's box. Unfucking real. Okay. So currently, fashion forecasters tend to work on intuition, gut feeling. Sometimes they look at the historical cycles, but psychologists are well-trained in data analysis, and they will be able to predict fashion trends much better using, like, actual data. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there's the obvious way that psychologists can work in the fashion industry, and that's in consumer behavior. So Mm -hmm. customers now have fantastic opportunities for competition from searching online and in-store. So the retail companies, fashion retail companies, have to give consumers a fantastic experience. Um, And who better to help design a fantastic experience than psychologists? She also Mm -hmm. talks quite a lot about um, how what you wear affects your behavior and like your Mm -hmm. ambition and talks about the idea of Dress for the job you want, not the job you have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I want the job that I have. So yeah. I only wear <laughs> leggings and Correct. no bra. But she Correct. also talks about how that is becoming more and more outdated because our working environments are, well, obviously 2020 aside, like right. putting working at home aside. In general, office professional environments have becoming have become more casual. Mm-hmm. So it's not always, you know, pumps and a pencil skirt and a button-up blouse every day. I can't even imagine. Can you imagine having to do that? No. No. It's too many buttons. I can't. I I have friends who are lawyers who are like, yeah, that's my life. It's a a good day if I brush my hair. Yep. My teeth. (laughs) Let's be real. (laughs) Which I took a shower today, so of course I brushed my teeth. But... Uh, (laughs) You can't um, smell me through the phone, honey. Um, <laughs> even Zach, who is, uh, you know, he was a teacher and now he's a principal. He, you know, he's always worked in independent schools, private schools, so it's, it's different. But when he first started, he wore, like, slacks and a button-down and a tie every mm-hmm. single day. And sometimes he would even wear a vest. No. Oh, Lord. Yeah. With a corn cob pipe and some <laughs> yeah. tortoiseshell glasses. He had button he, nose. He went through some phases. We've been together a long time. Just the world's most tropey, like pornographic <laughs> middle school teacher. <laughs> every day. But, Mr. Um, Cohen. Okay, st- that's really gross. Stop. So uh, <laughs> now, as a principal, he can wear like jeans and a t-shirt teach me timetable stop it (laughs) (laughs) long division okay no it's not okay stop it (laughs) dewey decimal stop it oh it's so dewey (laughs) (laughs) okay sponsors (laughs) (laughs) the dewey decimal system has never been filthier okay (laughs) Okay, all right. I have just a little bit more to get through. Oh, I also wanted to touch on another thing she talked about, the fact that, like, Steve Jobs always wore the same outfit and Elizabeth, what's her fucking nuts, Uh always uh wore the same outfit. It's because, like, actually focusing on, it's not just about getting dressed and deciding what to wear at the beginning of your day. It's being comfortable and not thinking about it at all throughout Mm -hmm. the day. Mm-hmm. It just re- it it leaves a lot more brain space for you to concentrate mm-hmm. on other things. It's kind of remarkable how often we think about 
what the fuck we're wearing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. She also estimates that about 15 million Americans have a spending addiction, so she can advise on responsible consumption from a consumer standpoint. On that note, research suggests that 80% of the clothes in our closets are unworn. Mm-hmm. Ever? Or just unworn regularly. Yeah. So for the love of God, reconsider before buying that cheap Target cardigan that will not last beyond a single laundry cycle. Yeah. It will pill. Donate it's your clothes when possible. And also, if it's something that like is ripped or like you can't even donate it, a lot of areas have textile recycling programs. Mm-hmm. So Google it because seriously, clothing is one of the worst things. Yep on our planet right now yeah it also decimates like local industries uh cloth industries and stuff when like you know a lot of you know super bowl shirts that right for the like losing team oh that yeah are, they make like millions of them ahead of time or like so you they're have ready a, to go your saint patrick's day fun run you print mm-hmm. 1500 shirts that people wear one time on one day i hate right. that so much. I hate it so mm-hmm. much and um yeah, then all of those things are like shipped off or, you know, quote unquote donated abroad. And it was really common to see in some of the townships and informal settlements in South Africa, people wearing shirts for like clearly a, a U.S. fun run. Yeah. Right. Um, so these are all like donated or sold like super cheap abroad because you can just buy like a bag of you basically buy like a mystery bag of clothes for like a dollar. Yeah. Which, like, okay, great, it's going to somebody who needs it, but also, like, imagine the carbon footprint that took that shirt all the way around the world. Like, yeah. h- how much we can, we can do better. The carbon footprint, also, it's destroying local fashion, the local fashion industry, the local cloth industry. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's probably past the point of being fixable at this point, but But we that's can do better moving on. forward. Yeah. Okay, that's my segment. Happy to well end on a on a, a happy little note there. Love it. <laughs> All right. Well, now let's hear a word from our sponsors, which are objects that you can buy. Do a decimal. Stop it. I don't like <laughs> so it. So do <laughs> Hi, friends. Mm. It's already the holiday season. <laughs> what the heck? And we all know it might be looking a little different this year, which is why Me Undies is here to make this time a lot more comfortable for your downstairs. Mm-hmm. Me Undies has the comfiest, coziest products that will make your time inside all the more enjoyable. This year, we relax, we stay in, we watch movies, we order online, we cuddle. 2020 allows it, nay, it demands it. No, but. <laughs> Seriously, the CDC recommends staying inside. And yeah. Oh, yeah. Not stay, leaving your house. Stay, stay home. home. Stay, stay home. home. Just don't forget the hot cocoa and marathon of holiday movies. MeUndies has quite literally become the foundation of my very relationship, my existence. Mm-hmm. It's everything Your to underwear me. drawer. It is. I have basically disposed of every other pair of underwear I've ever owned mm-hmm. and replaced yep. all of them with MeUndies. Yeah. I've yeeted Bye-bye. all of my old underwear. <laughs> yeah. Unceremoniously <laughs> dumped window. in the trash. In a fire. I lit some on fire. Um, And I'm thrilled at the switch that I've made because it is no joke how comfortable these undergarments are. And with the holiday season like rapidly approaching, I mean, it's here. The onesie game 
Mm-hmm. You got to step it up. The onesie game's got to be strong, and the foundation underneath that onesie is equally important. And, you know, this is a different year. It doesn't mean it's a year any less special or any less fun. You could argue it's, <laughs> it's more very special. special. Yeah. Maybe less fun, but a lot more special. <laughs> and we believe that you should get cozy as heck and gift yourself with some new undies, loungewear, and PJs. And you know what? Gift your loved ones, too. The mall is a thing of the past. Hell yes. That's like the greatest gift of quarantine is the mall just not being a thing anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and MeUndies offers free shipping. So while you're gifting yourself some comfy new goodies from your couch, you might as well throw in some gifts for your friends and fam. You can match your partner. I have like a MeUndies subscription and we get matching pantaloons delivered every month. It's amazing. So cute. And I can confirm that they will love them as much as you do. So you got permission to go wild. Go wild. And MeUndies has brand spanking new winter products this year. So get your cozy on with their new PJ sets and holiday themed prints. And keep an eye out for other new additions. And like I kind of mentioned, MeUndies also has the greatest membership program on the face of the earth. You can get a new pair of undies or socks every month and give your top drawer a complete refresh. You also get access to like member pricing and uh, members only patterns, which is really fun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's the best. So MeUndies has a great offer for our listeners. For any first-time purchasers, you get 15% off and free shipping. MeUndies also has their problem-free philosophy. Mm. If you're not satisfied with any product for any reason, they will refund or exchange it. No caveats, no questions, no ifs, ands, or buts, except maybe your butt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So to get your 15% off your first order and free shipping, go to MeUndies.com slash gals, G-A-L-S. That's MeUndies.com slash gals. Treat your nethers. Treat Treat them. I think we've all been looking for ways to make home more comfortable. I certainly have. And especially because I have a cat, generously warm, fun, gentle pepperoni. Mm -hmm. But covering up the litter box smell is a must. You know, you can love your your cat without Mm -hmm. having to love the The smell smell. Mm -hmm. of your cat. And we're all working from home now, and I don't know where, you know, everybody has their special place for their cat's litter box. Ours is in the laundry room, which is like off the kitchen. It's right by my bathroom. It's it's an off the beaten path area, but it's still an area that you can smell from multiple rooms. Mm-hmm. So it's really important, especially like when you're dealing with clean laundry and dirty laundry to not have all the dust kicked up, Mm -hmm. not have the smell, I'm standing in there folding, you know, whatever. So when I found Pretty Litter, I realized it does so much more than just like the trap door on a litter box. It's been a game changer. It really has. Pretty Litter is unlike any cat litter that I've ever used before. It's ultra absorbent crystals, trap odor instantly, and it lasts up to a month. Mm -hmm. Up to a month. Yeah. You scoop it, you scoop the poops, and then you change the whole thing out once a month. It could not be easier. Plus, Pretty Litter is safer for your cat and for the whole household. Many conventional litters contain irritants that can aggravate allergies and asthma, but Pretty Litter's super light crystal base minimizes mess and dust. I personally have noticed a difference in my cat's general health because mm-hmm. of... A little th- that lack of steps. dust. Yeah, they're inhaling it too. Not just yeah. us. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. It's it's incredible. And Pretty Litter arrives safely at my door in a small, lightweight bag. Shipping is free. I never have to worry about storing those awful, bulky containers that like don't actually ever fit in your recycling no, bin. No, and they're bright yellow, and no one can tell if it's sidewalk salt or litter, and it's too confusing, and they're too heavy, and I hate it. Also, just... Having to buy that at the grocery store along with your other groceries oh, and having and to make it. multiple trips from your car no. up the stairs. No. Mm-mm. It's not it's it's awful. I love that it's just delivered to my door. I do not have to think about it. Mm-hmm. But here is why Pretty Litter is my all-time favorite. It changes colors to help detect early signs of potential illness, including urinary tract infections and kidney issues, because mm-hmm. cats don't really like to confess when they're not feeling that great. They mm-hmm. don't. They cover it up. They're purring no matter what. It's very confusing. So being well, able and to sometimes l- cats will purr when they're in pain. Right. That's what I'm saying. It's they bumps. purr when they're happy. They purr when they're sick. It's, yeah. It's very misleading. So you can look at their litter and be like, "Wow, that's blue. Mm-hmm. I should get that checked out." Mm-hmm. So it helps everyone, just all around. Amazing. So do what Lucy and Amanda did and make the switch to Pretty Litter today. Get 20% off your first order by visiting prettylitter.com and use promo code GALS, G-A-L-S. That's prettylitter.com, promo code GALS for 20% off. Prettylitter.com, promo code GALS. Treat your kitties. Trade them. Here is my case. So I had never heard of this guy before, but somehow came across him, saw one photo of this beautiful unicorn and was like, yeah, need to cover this guy. Hooked. So Rudolph Mushammer was Giuliani. <laughs> Gross. <Ugh. laughs> Have you guys seen that scene from the mm-hmm. new Yes. I yeah. don't want to talk about it. It's amazing. He was so touching his penis. I A thousand care. percent. I have to oh, send yeah. you guys this meme that my friend Eric sent me that was like a, a person that had been killed in uh, like a, I'm really explaining this really well in um, of like a volcanic eruption, whatever, like the most famous volca- volcanic eruption was Pompeii and yeah, Pompeii. Okay. And they, the, the, the remains look as though they were touching, touching themselves. themselves at the time of death. Oh. And it's like <laughs> historic mummification of person killed in Pompeii while just tucking in their shirt <laughs> or something. Like that. Oh. Mummification of Rudy Giuliani. Can you it's imagine? So I'll send it to you. It's I, terrible. God, that would be so unfortunate. <laughs> That's fully how I'm going to go out in a volcanic eruption. Either <laughs> taking mast- a dump or masturbating. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay. There's only two options. <laughs> All right. I'm two words into my case. Just, you know, so- it reminded me. So, Rudolf Mushammer was born on September 27th, 1940 in Munich, Germany, His date of birth was unknown until fairly late in his life, and some articles said that his age was a closely guarded secret. Um, Nobody cares. (laughs) I know. Yeah, right? No one actually cares. No one ever cares. People who don't want to divulge their age, like, respect, but also, we don't care. (laughs) Get over yourself. Let me tell you right now, (laughs) no one one cares. And if you look good for being older, then you should be proud of it. Yeah. And if you look. The age that you are, still no one cares. No one cares. Right. Well, Rudolph cared, and he often (laughs) pretended to be several years younger than he was. (laughs) He was an only child and had an extremely close relationship with his mother, Elsa. 
Well, that's never good. (laughs) (laughs) The two. (laughs) That is a huge red flag. Red flag. Oh, no. They were inseparable. And this makes particular sense given the trauma that they both survived together. So the family lived in poverty when Rudolph was a young boy. And uh, he and his mother fled from his alcoholic and abusive father when he was young. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, And also this is like, well, he was born during World War II in Germany, but then, you know, as a young child, it's like post-World War II Germany and, you know, Mm -hmm. post-war anywhere sucks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So his father was alcoholic and abusive, and his father would later die, I believe, of cirrhosis of the liver while homeless. So tough, tough childhood, tough father. Despite or maybe because of his humble beginnings, Rudolph loved all things glamorous. Mm. And he dreamed of being wealthy and famous so that neither he nor his mother would ever have to experience the fear and instability of living in poverty ever again. That's Fair. nice. Get Can it. relate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. After he finished high school, Rudolph began training as a tailor before uh, changing course somewhat and going back to school to study retail merchandising. Mm-hmm. In the early 1960s, he began working as a fashion designer and was able to find a wealthy benefactor. Oh, how? I love benefactors. <laughs> yeah. Who was willing to finance the opening of his own clothing boutique? Mm. So they saw something in him and they were like, yeah, here's the money. Start your own store. Moshammer, who would become known amongst fans simply as Mosi, mm. along with his mother, set up a shop on Munich's high-end shopping street, Maximilianstrasse. Nice. Much stress. (laughs) Maximum stress. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 2020 is maximum stress. stress. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The store, which he named Carnival de Venise, so like Venetian carnival, Mm -hmm. specialized in furs, cashmere, cashmere, and brightly colored silk clothing exclusively for men. Yes. It was a sensation from day one with an opening night party that featured, among other flamboyant touches, a live cheetah. Oh, wow. Yeah. This is in the early 1960s in Munich. It was like, this was like, what? Like, this was avant garde. Mm -hmm. Very Christine from Selling Sunset. Mm hmm. According to one source, uh, Mosi filled a vacuum for Munich society in the 1970s and 80s, providing campiness and fun to a Cold War-era culture that desperately needed touches of joy. Mm-hmm. Moshammer soon made a name for himself outside of Munich and was attracting a clientele of well-known men ranging from European royalty. They listed a bunch of royalty that I had never heard of. <laughs> never not, heard of not it. Not the British royal family, let's put it that way more of the kooky royals, to celebrities like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Ever. There we go. <laughs> and Rudolph's kindred spirits, Siegfried and Roy. Yes. <laughs> so if you want a sense of what his ensembles looked like, picture Siegfried and Roy. Got it. Amazing. Perfection. At one point, his boutique was given the designation of the most expensive clothing store in Europe. The most expensive clothes that you do not want to wear. <laughs> or uh, that anyone would ever need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
In addition to his clothing, Mushammer also became wildly known for his own eccentric appearance and personality. So now is the time where you get to go look at some photos of this yes. man. Yes. Okay. Yup. <laughs> is that a wig? Do you see old Amanda? Uh, yes, with it, with the dog. Oh. Oh wait, no. Okay, that is actually old oh. me. I was assuming this <laughs> That's man his was mother. the old me. She's Her perfect. Hair is blue. Her and hair I is beautiful. It's a beautiful blue. Okay, but this, this is man. actually gonna be me. <laughs> it's gonna be me. Oh yeah. my Do you see? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everyone needs felt- to go to the blog. Also, what's with his little two little bangs? Yeah, I love it. he likes I love his it. wisps. There's like two. Exactly yeah. two bangs. One we bang, two bangs. We used to do that, so I don't think I any of us can like call that. him out. Not in the very front <laughs> no, of no. your forehead, no. Well, ours no. were just longer. Mine are on the side, usually. But yeah, wisps, man. He mm. likes them. I think it's a way to like display how long his hair is. Or just display that you have it and it's not just a helmet because right. this is so, this pompadour is so quaffed mm-hmm. that it looks plasticine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's dedicated to the wisps, though. These They're, wisps are just last the indication the of hair. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Yeah. I He's love his mother slash older Amanda. Yeah. Just go to the blog, you guys. It's really it's worth it. It's impossible to describe I'll, and oh, it needs to be experienced. Also, the photo of him presumably out in front of his store. He's wearing the coat of Dalmatian puppies from oh, yeah. 101 Dalmatians. <laughs> from 101 Dalmatians. Oh, yes. He's Cruella DeVille. He was into real fur. I can absolutely attest to that. Those, mm-hmm. yeah. that is, those are the bodies of 75 Dalmatian puppies. Probably, mm-hmm. yes. Or maybe 101. Like. I don't know. Also, look at how wary young Arnold Schwarzenegger looks being measured. <laughs> Just please And his stop. head is like up in the chandelier. He's massive. He's inside He's a giant. That, he's in the light fixture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's consuming him. It's so good. So as we've said, his signature look was a jet black bouffant hairdo, spray tanned skin, and a thin waxed mustache. He looks exactly like the guy from The Second Wind. Dick and Rico. If you live in Minnesota, you know who this is. Kenyon and I saw him on the highway once. Yes, yes, we did. I used to serve him occasionally at Rock Bottom Brewery with mm-hmm. a rotating harem of mm-hmm. haggard-looking <laughs> dates, ac- acquaintances. Yes. It does look like <laughs> Dick and Rico. We were driving yeah. up 494 one time, and there was an Escalade in front of us, and the license plate said Second Wind. And yep. jokingly, we were like, oh, my God, it's Dick and Rico, and I passed him. <laughs> And it was fucking Dick and Rico. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> we scream. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> but why buy new when slightly used will do, except when the deals are this good? <laughs> An X that we will not mention, yeah. but rhymes with plan, was plan. a home technician for Second wind sporting good equipment. Wow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How could you leave that behind? So many dog brush, treadmills that were fame. destroyed because they were full of dried urine that he had to clean. Ew. Uh, okay. So back to <laughs> Sully Dick and Rico's not name. that. 
Okay. <laughs> you know Dick Enrico is like not good, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's like a dick. <laughs> Whatever. Okay. Maybe if you're going to die on a hill, that hill shouldn't be like the, the <laughs> reputation, sullying the reputation of Dick and Rico. No, he's a horrible Say, man. Save your energy. He's a terrible person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Back to Mush Emmer. He was obsessed with and modeled himself on King Ludwig II, who you've probably heard of him. He was the 19th century Bavarian king. Nicknamed the Swan King or <laughs> sure. the Fairy Tale King. Okay. And he was ultimately declared insane and dethroned. <laughs> but, like, which king? Because that could apply to yeah. so much royalty. I wish that would time. happen in the US right now. Right? right? Where gone are the days? Yeah. It's the Swan well, President. <laughs> So he was dethroned because of his out-of-control spending, not on golf, but on the construction of a series of lavish castles. Walls. So <laughs> most of the, like, really beautiful, like, full-on Cinderella-style castles in parts of Germany were built by this guy. I mean, he he built some cool shit, but he spent way too much money. King Ludwig never married and is believed to have had multiple secret affairs with men which Moshemmer likely would have also related to because he was widely understood to be gay. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't talked about. It's a don't ask, don't tell situation. Yeah, he was intensely private about his personal life. He doesn't owe anyone any sort of explanation. Not a goddamn thing. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. So Moshemmer's closest personal relationships were, like we've said, with his mother slash old Amanda, (laughs) and with a Yorkshire Terrier dog named Daisy. (gasps) Miss Daisy! Yes! Uh, Ick Daisy, and we will get to it. I love this dog. Don't read ahead in my notes. I'm not. I am on the photos. Okay, good. Stay on the photos because this next part is my favorite, and I want to I'm staring at my future and this dog. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) She said it as her background, desktop background already. Mm. I basically have the pink suit. Hi. So he carried Daisy with him wherever he went, but actually, this was a successive series of identical Yorkshire Terriers, (gasps) each named Daisy. It's like a goldfish (laughs) that you keep replacing, and your kid just doesn't know. Yes. Eek, Daisy. Wait, wait. and when one would die, he would just swap them out. (gasps) Oh, my God. I mean, he didn't want to lose any more in his life. Yeah, I mean, I will do this with Josie. Yeah. So the cloning has already yeah. begun. Yeah, we looked up cloning dog cloning prices the other day. Good fuck. Okay, let's yeah. keep going. <laughs> so if I wasn't planning on having children someday, I would absolutely have already initiated that process. Um, <laughs> well, you so, almost, yeah, okay. <laughs> so, but I believe that the last Daisy uh, survived him. Well, the last Daisy did survive him, but I believe that this one was his favorite. I better have pets to survive me just so that someone can put in my obituary, survived by, and yeah. list my pets. <laughs> survived the only by reason. Pelvis Mesley. Yup. Pelvis Mesley. He's lifeless, um, so he's here forever. Uh, Mushhammer also launched a line of dog clothing named after Daisy and wrote a biography of her entitled Eek Daisy. <laughs> no. <laughs> Did you know? Huh? 
When you started saying that, did you know this was coming? She already said it. I thought when we first met Daisy, I really can't tell you apart. I thought when we first <laughs> met Daisy, Lucy said, Eked Daisy, and now we're learning that he actually wrote no, this biography. No, I said, Miss Daisy, because, oh, of, that Mish, old, because okay. of that old lady. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, old on the lady bikes. on yep. the bike. Yeah, yeah, she was saying Miss Daisy with that voice. Miss Daisy. And, <laughs> and I then said, Ich, Daisy, because I knew my own. There we go. Okay, okay. <laughs> I was confused. So, yeah, Ich, Daisy, Bekenntnisse einer Hundedam, meaning I am Daisy, confessions of a lady dog. Oh, wow. Confessions of a bitch. <laughs> oh. Hundedam. I love her. So I just love Ich Daisy <laughs> so much. I feel like I need an Ich Daisy tattoo. That just means I Daisy, right? Me Daisy. Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. I am Daisy. Yeah. <laughs> Mushammer was described by one source as Germany's only, quote, only genuine eccentric. So he just, he wasn't trying to be anyone he wasn't. He just really was this persona. Mm-hmm. But in addition to his bizarre behavior and his love of fashion, Moschammer was also dedicated to giving back to his city of Munich and was especially concerned with helping the city's homeless population. And this might have had something to do with his father's, right, you know, sad fate, or perhaps it was just something he cared a lot about, but it was his main ch- philanthropic uh, issue mm-hmm. that he did a lot of, you know, to work on. An acquaintance of Mushammer's who helped run a prominent homeless charity in Munich stated, quote, he certainly lived in a sort of fantasy world, but if that made him money and made money as well for countless homeless people, I have nothing against it. Aww. So, yeah. When Mushammer's, albeit garish, clothing designs <laughs> began to go out of style, he was able to transition into making money as a TV personality. Yes. Appearing in advertisements for everything from rental cars to fast food restaurants. So he pl- he Fantastic. played up his, he knew his shit. It's Taco Bell. <laughs> <laughs> A friend of his named Adelheid von Wackerbarth. There we yes. go. Yes. Now we're cooking with gas. <laughs> von Wacker Barth. Oh, Incredible. Yeah. Stated that, quote, he was, and Americans can understand this, a real self-made man. He could always sell himself and present himself well. He really loved himself. Mm. And he Wacker. continued... <laughs> and he continued to use his fame and wealth to help those less fortunate. In 2002, Rudolph auctioned off a shirt that he claimed had been worn by Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo. Okay. And it very well could have, because I'm sure he had, like, a ton of, like, bizarro antiques. He had a he lot of money. He really meant an employee named Napoleon at the Waterloo outlets, <laughs> outlets. in upstate New York. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Napoleon! Why, why are you so sad? Because I was defeated, defeated by, by the, the prices at the Waterloo outlets. <laughs> What? <laughs> we wrote our own commercial for the Waterloo outlets and we would recite it every time we drove by it to and from college. <laughs> and Keith up. Yeah. Where were you? Not there. <laughs> so <laughs> it was a it was a mood. <laughs> so 
this shirt sold for 62,000 euros, and he donated the entirety of the proceeds to a Munich homeless charity. That's awesome. But this beloved German figure, who one source described as the closest Munich had to royalty, would ultimately meet a tragic end. Oh, no. I was kind of hoping they were the killer and not the killed. No. Sad. Yeah. Well... On the morning of January 14th, 2005, Mushammer's chauffeur arrived at his home, which was a lavish villa in an exclusive suburb of Munich. Why do I not have a lavish villa? <laughs> <laughs> to pick him up for an appointment. You do need a lavish villa. You do need a do top you hat. Know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so the chauffeur, this is like so... It's so just a game of clue. The chauffeur found Moshammer dead. In the driveway with the candlestick. <laughs> he, he had been strangled to death with a black electrical cord. Jesus. And the murder weapon was found on the floor near the body. Oh, Lord. Okay. Daisy, likely the lone eyewitness to her <sighs> owner's own brutal murder. I wasn't witness. talking. Was found alive and unharmed, thank goodness, oh, in the mansion's living room. Well, there were like 70 of them. How do they know? <laughs> no, he would wait till one died and then he'd swap them out. Keep up. <laughs> <laughs> in the days. You just have a room full of dogs, all I do. No, I mean, I wouldn't put it past enough. him. Yeah. I mean, that could have been how this played out, yeah. but it isn't. You don't know. <laughs> so, in the days after Moshammer's death, there was speculation that he could have been killed by a stalker because he mm. was so in the public eye. Sure. And um, there had been an incident a couple years before where he'd been sent a series of threatening letters, Ooh. and one of which promised to, quote, Free you from the wicked world by sending you to the moon and to the good world in heaven. Uh, I mean, good intentions. Where do I sign? Actually, it's like, I guess it's, I mean, it is threatening, but it's also but like. But in like a gentle kind of nice Kind way. of romantic. Sounds like I'll a lullaby. It. I'd love to go to the moon. <laughs> I'd love to sleep forever. <laughs> One day. My Chinese name is the girl on the moon. Yeah. Basically there. Yeah. My Chinese name meant, like, white orchid, but then I said it once in front of a classroom of children, and they all burst out laughing, so it definitely meant something else in different tones. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. And I never figured out what it was. <laughs> What's your Chinese name? Deep Lan vagina. <laughs> Lan hua. Well, yeah. Hua, flower. Hua's flower. Yeah. I know. But it's probably putrid flower. I don't know. It's probably something vaginal. Um, <laughs> they burst out the entire class, and I was just like frozen standing at the front of the room. Was this the day that you forgot your umbrella and it super looked like you were lactating through your raincoat? <laughs> that was a different time I was mortally embarrassed. <laughs> Mortified in front of a classroom of young adults. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's okay. great, it's great, it's great. So, <laughs> this, <laughs> I'm just picturing the lactation spots. My raincoat had, like, strategic holes in it. Why? It, not, ne like, they had, 
It was like an accident. Like it was an old oh, raincoat. Oh, not a function. No, it, was it wasn't like strategic. Coat. It was coincidental. <laughs> it was ironic. Yeah. Yes. Oh, no. And so there were just two. I was totally dry taking off my raincoat except for two <laughs> perfectly wet circles just over my nipples. Great. Perfect. It was unbelievable. <laughs> we got drunk that night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was like my first day of class. Yeah. Oh, what? no. You're setting the tone. Oh, oh my Jesus. God. She's setting a standard for sure. <laughs> it's a bit so, nippy in here, Ms. Lang. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the stalker theory proved unfounded. Police were able to retrieve DNA from the electrical cord, and this quickly led them to a 25-year-old Iraqi man named Harish Abdullah, huh. who had been living in Munich at, <laughs> which I wrote as Munch. <laughs> <laughs> Close enough. Munich, as a refugee since 2001, and his DNA was already on file from a previous arrest for sexual assault. Mm. I don't know if the victim in that case was male or female or neither um, or both, but he had previously been arrested. During questioning, Harish um, confessed to attacking Moshemmer, but he claimed that the night of the murder, he had met Rudolph at the train station and he had offered to pay him 2,000 euros for sexual favors. Okay. And according to Harish, um, he agreed to go home with Mushammer, and it's unclear whether Harish identifies as homosexual or whether he engages in sex with men only as sex work mm-hmm. or whether he doesn't actually have sex with men at all and was mm-hmm. never intending to with Mushammer and was just going to steal from him. Mm-hmm. 2,000 euros is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. A lot of money. So we don't actually know. I couldn't find out that much about Harish himself, but this is all what he claimed. He claimed that the pair did have sex, but that afterwards Mushammer refused to pay him the 2,000 euros. Mm-hmm. But this sounds super unlikely because right. that amount of money was like not significant for Rudolph. Yeah. That's a good Postmates order on a drunk night <laughs> <laughs> for a guy with this kind of wealth. Right, right. <laughs> Um, and then in a later account of the event, Harris changed his story somewhat mm-hmm. and said that when they arrived back at Moshemmer's villa in the Rolls Royce, he told Moshemmer that he needed to pay him before they had sex, which mm-hmm. Moshemmer refused. And then he claims that Mush- Moshemmer locked the doors of the house with both men inside and demanded that Hirsch or Harris have sex with him. Mm. As they'd previously agreed on, but like that also seems very unlikely to me. Mm-hmm. Like I just don't see this man taking that kind of risk with a stranger, being like, "You're locked in my house and you must have sex with me." Right. And when you have that kind of money, if one, if a sex worker doesn't, if it doesn't pan out the way you expected, right, you could probably just find someone else, write it off, and. Mm-hmm. Right. Go in a different direction. Right. Pivot. And, I mean, look, obviously, like, sex workers, male, female, and everywhere in between are, you know, vulnerable to attacks from clients and mm-hmm. to, you know, it's a, it's an inherently dangerous occupation. So, I guess it's possible, but given what happened next and given his changing stories, I'm going to go with... Don't know no. enough about his history to know if he's even, like, obviously he is engaging in sex work in this 
circumstance. But was this a regular, like, did I miss that? Was this a regular occurrence for? Mushhammer? No, for uh, Harish. That's what we don't know. I don't yeah. know if he was just propositioned by Mushhammer and was right, like, and oh, sees I, a guy in a Rolls a, Royce yeah, and is like, I can target I, him. That's kind of what where my head's going. It's like, yeah. oh, I could just agree to get in this car and go back to their house and I could make off with, you know, Money. picking me up in a Rolls. There's probably a lot more where that came from. Right. It's very possible. I don't know if he was a hustler. I don't know if he did engage in sex work. I don't know if he was, you know, into men and Mm -hmm. also engaged in sex work. I don't know. I do know that he had previously been arrested for sexual assault. Mm -hmm. So Harish insisted that he had not intended to kill Moshammer and that he had just grabbed the electrical cord out of the nearby outlet and, and wrapped it around his neck until he lost consciousness and that he still believed him to be alive when mm-hmm. he left the mansion, he thought he was just unconscious. Okay. Again, take all this with a grain of salt because yeah. he's that's a lot the killer. To grab and he's a spinning cord, a defense. Wrap yeah. it around someone's neck and be like, "Oh, I didn't. I def- definitely didn't mean to kill him." Mm-hmm. Right. Mm. Yeah. Well, and if you're trying to get away, I mean, we know from doing this show for so long that that's a pretty intimate way to kill someone. It takes a very long time to strangle someone to death. Yeah, and you're telling me this guy mm -hmm. didn't have, like, a bust that you could have just grabbed and bopped him over the head with if you're just trying to get out of the house? He was probably flush with gilded busts. (laughs) Let's be honest. Bust flush. Grab a bust of Napoleon. Yeah. Also, you have to think about the age difference. So I don't know how old Harish was, but Mushammer, this is 2005. He was born in 1940. So he's not young. He's not young. He's in his 60s. Yeah. I believe Harish was much much younger, but I don't know for sure. So I think he was trying to steal from him and end mm-hmm. up killing him. That's what I think. So Mushammer's death and the arrest of Harish led to a tabloid frenzy in Germany. And mm-hmm. although Mushammer had never publicly discussed his sexuality throughout his life, tabloids now it's on full fucking display in his right. death. That's he'd he'd sad. always been referred to in the tabloids as a closeted gay man. Which is like, yeah, we just shouldn't speculate on other people's sexuality. But mm-hmm. So his death at the hands of an alleged male sex worker seemed to confirm some of these longstanding rumors. And the fact that Harish, the killer, was an Iraqi refugee also lent itself to unfortunate gossip and unfair political debate. Mm-hmm. Just stupid and misguided because immigrants and refugees are actually statistically less likely than citizens to commit violent crime, but whatever. Yeah. But whatever. But whatever. But whatever. It's fine. Coincidence does not statistic make. Mm-hmm. But the most prevalent reaction to his death was just that of grief and shock over losing a beloved cultural icon. So more than 10,000 people lined the streets of Munch. <gasps> <laughs> Good old Munch. <laughs> on, on the day of Mushammer's funeral, and the service was broadcast live, it, like in like simulcast on several mm-hmm. TV stations. And in many ways, this was like the kind of public grief that accompanies the death of royalty or like a head of state. Or Selena. Yeah. So this was like not quite Lady Di right. shit, but it was Approaching. a lot of people. Wow. Yeah. 
The funeral procession passed by his boutique on Maximilianstrasse before continuing to the cemetery where he was buried alongside his mother, old Amanda. And six of his seven daisies. <laughs> and <laughs> 72 Yorkshire terriers. <laughs> and at least one daisy. <laughs> Harish Abdullah was sentenced to life in prison. At the sentencing hearing, the judge said to him, quote, you killed in an insidious manner out of greed and to make robbery possible, implying that Harish's motive for the initial meeting was to follow him home, attack and rob him, mm-hmm. not to ever have sex with him. Right. Although Harish maintained that the death had been an accident, so he, whatever. As for Daisy, Moshemmer's will gave custody of her to his dear friend, the chauffeur, Andreas, who discovered the body, along with a generous sum of money for Daisy's care oh. for the rest of her life. I want to be, I want to inherit a dog that <laughs> is accompanied by a large sum of money. Yeah, you do, because Moshammer also left his villa to Daisy. Oh, oh my God. With the stipulation that Andreas could live there while caring for the dog until she died. I'd swap that bitch out, too. Um, be like, yeah, what do you what mean? What is he going to do uh, with She's the, the world's oh, oldest dog. Right. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Mm-hmm. Completely. That dog would never die. Nope. Eek, Daisy. Eek, Daisy. Moshammer's will also stipulated that his clothing boutique, limousine, and various other assets be sold, and the proceeds should go to charities for the homeless. Oh, that's amazing. So he just, like, gave and gave. And only a couple weeks after his death, it was announced that Daisy, described in the press as the most famous dog in Germany, (laughs) the the most famous Hundedam in in Deutschland, would star in her own reality TV show. No. Yes. Yorkshire vet, move over. <laughs> Ick Daisy is here. Ick Daisy. <laughs> Ikaba Ina Daisy. <laughs> <laughs> Although some people expressed concerns that the chauffeur was exploiting Moshammer's death by pursuing the TV contract for Daisy, one close friend of Moshammer's told the press that Rudolph would actually be, quote, immensely proud of seeing his canine companion Step out from his shadow and forge a name for herself. (laughs) Good girl. And also, if he's going to, like, lose the mansion when this dog croaks, I would be getting every penny I could to secure my future. Yeah, I would be publishing a a new edition of Ich Daisy, the Mm -hmm. memoir. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Everything. A thousand percent. Yeah, she doesn't care. She's a dog. She's a fucking dog. As long as she's well cared for, which clearly she is. She has her own villa. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we're good. She's fine. I love all the daisies. Yep. Yeah. Each one is good as the next. (laughs) I love that he wanted her to forge a name for herself. Yes. Get out from under his shadow. I love that. Yeah. So strong independent dog. Strong woman. independent days. Hundadam. <laughs> so that's my case. Good job. I liked that. Amazing. <laughs> Perfectly sad mm-hmm. and lovely. Mm-hmm. And Daisy. And Daisy. Mm-hmm. Well done, madam. Thank you. All right. Shall we hear a word from our sponsors? Yes. Let's do it. The holiday season is here, and holiday shoppers are buying more stuff online than ever before. I know I am. Mm -hmm. And if you're an online seller, you might be struggling to keep up. So you can get (laughs) 
your ship together with ShipStation. When you're selling online, getting a massive amount of orders out quickly can be really tough. We know from personal experience as a mm. small, you know, business. And you don't always know which shipping carrier should you use. Are you getting the best rates? Will it be delivered on time? And that is why our choice is ShipStation.com. It is the fastest, easiest, and most affordable way to manage and ship your orders. In just a few clicks, you're managing orders, printing out discounted shipping labels, and getting your products out fast. And the result? Happier holidays for you and your customers. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll say ShipStation <laughs> helps online sellers get orders out quickly, save money on shipping costs, and keep your customers happy. No matter what you're selling from Shopify, Amazon, eBay, wine and crime podcast at BigCartel.com, ShipStation brings all of your orders into one simple interface. Truly, truly very simple. I have mm. never had issues like finding anything on their interface. They also mm-hmm. have an amazing app. So you can easily manage any orders from your device, your cell phone, whatever. It's so simple. ShipStation works with all of the major carriers, including USPS, FedEx, UPS. You can even ship internationally. You can compare and choose the best shipping solution every time. They even offer big discounts on shipping costs. So now any business can access the same postage discounts that are usually reserved for like Fortune 500 companies Mm -hmm. and you're just this tiny little Etsy sweetheart and you're getting those same deals. We We got ship station. We got ship to do. Mm -hmm. So no wonder ship station is the number one choice of online sellers. You will ship more in less time with the best rates available. And I might add wonderful customer service if you do Mm -hmm. get stuck. Mm -hmm. Phenomenal. And right now, Wine and Crime listeners can try ShipStation free for 60 days when you use offer code GALS. Make sure your business can meet the demand of this massive online shopping season. It's going to be huge. Mm -hmm. So get started at ShipStation.com today. (laughs) Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GALS, G-A-L-S. That's ShipStation.com. Then enter offer code GALS. ShipStation.com. Make ship happen. Make it. FrameBridge makes it easier and more affordable than ever to frame your favorite things without ever leaving the house. God bless. Mm -hmm. From art prints and posters to the photos just sitting on your phone, you can FrameBridge just about anything. FrameBridge is also the perfect way to give easy and thoughtful gifts. Seriously. Mm -hmm. In just minutes, you can turn a photo from your phone into one of your best gifts ever. Yes. And here is a reminder of how it works. Just go to framebridge.com and upload your photo or... They'll send you packaging to safely mail in your physical pieces. I have done it both ways. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, like, when you're mailing in your physical pieces, the first time you might be, like, a little bit nervous to do that if it's, like, a very sentimental piece or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I have had 100% positive, amazing experiences with FrameBridge. I have sent in, like, one-of-a-kind pieces that are really important to me, like our Mm -hmm. ketubah from our wedding, you know, artwork from our grandparents, like all kinds of different important pieces. Sent them in the mail. The packaging was really well thought out. It was really secure. You get a notification when it has arrived. You get a notification when they start to frame it. It's just, you can just feel confident with FrameBridge. 
And then you can preview your item online in dozens of frame styles and different gallery wall layouts. Um, I love that feature so much. Because you know I love a gallery wall. That's like my world. You're a maximalist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) They have great frame styles. Honestly, so well curated. Mm -hmm. You can choose your favorite or get free recommendations from their talented designers. The experts at FrameBridge will custom frame your item and deliver your finished piece straight to you or to anyone on your list. If you're given a gift, I've given it as a gift to my mom and Mm -hmm. she was so thrilled. It was like the best gift (laughs) When Bill and I first started dating, I secretly, without telling him, sent him a FrameBridge of John C. Riley as Dr. Steve Brule just to his work with no note. <laughs> and it's like one of his favorite gifts he's ever gotten. Yeah. So it's can so do good. Stuff like that. Um, <laughs> a handcrafted personalized gift from Framebridge starts at just $39 and all shipping is free. And plus, our listeners will get 15% off their first order at framebridge.com when they use our code GALS, G-A-L-S. Mm-hmm. So get started today. Frame your photos or send someone the perfect gift. Go to framebridge.com and use promo code GALS to save an additional 15% off your first order. Just go to framebridge.com, promo code GALS. One more time, that's framebridge.com, promo code GALS. Treat your walls. Treat them. Treat them. All right. Are we ready? I don't mm-hmm. know. <laughs> you might not be because okay. this is also bonks, but of course it's fashion crimes. So like, well, fashion victims. So we had to go a little bonks. Um, we obviously can't have an episode on like fashion victims and crimes without diving into the humble beginnings, meteoric rise and a bloody tale of the Gucci family. Ooh, I didn't know there was a bloody tail there. Oh, there's a bloody tail. <laughs> You've sounded so much like Cher all day. Oh, there's a bloody tail. <laughs> it's the hair. It's all of this hair is yeah. making me, is giving me Cher vibes. Yeah. My Cher hair. Mm-hmm. So founded Cher hair by... Cher hair don't care. Cher hair don't care. Cher hair.com. Gucci-o Gucci. Which what? always be branding, ah, uh, I guess. Oh, no. The founder of Gucci is Gucci Gucci. Gucci. That's yeah. not that cute. <laughs> Who was a dishwasher and hotel porter with barely two pennies to rub together, was inspired by the luggage and fashion that he'd see at the hotel he worked at day in and day out. Mostly the luggage. So he'd see these, mm. like, lovely, but maybe not as eccentric as they could be or even as practical as they could be, pieces of luggage. And in his head, he's like, I could make this better. Cool. And that's how he started. So he opened his own leather goods store in Florence, Italy in 1921. And Gucci went from, quote, selling leather bags to horsemen in the 1920s and progressed to luxury luggage at his clients' Uh, as his clients graduated from equine transportation to horseless carriages. Nice. So obviously starting off in the 20s in Italy, the horse-drawn buggy was like still a thing there. Right. And as people moved over really entirely to motor vehicles, he was like, well, shit, I've got to switch it up. So he, Mm -hmm. you know, transitioned to luggage. Cool. So in 1938. Florence is known for their high quality mm, leather. Oh, yeah. Real nice leather. Real nice. So in 1938, Gucci Gucci opened their first retail shop in the Via Condotti in Rome. 
And obviously the rest is history with Gucci taking over the fashion world throughout the 1950s and launching even higher into the mainstream when Jackie O sported a Gucci shoulder bag in the 1960s. So that like they'd already been doing really well in Europe. Mm -hmm. And then Jackie O obviously style icon Mm -hmm. like blasted Gucci into the stratosphere in the United States and worldwide just by wearing that fucking bag. Like, Amazing. Influencer numero yeah. uno. Yeah. So the brand took a hit in the 80s when infighting between uh, Gucci family heirs led to grandson Maurizio inheriting the majority share of the family business. This portion is from Wikipedia because that's how we roll. <laughs> Quote, Maurizio Gucci inherited his father's majority stake in the company and launched a legal war against his uncle Aldo for full control of Gucci. Aldo? So, like Aldo shoes? Aldo, <gasps> No. I don't think so. Oh, okay. But Aldo had several sons as well who, and I didn't include this because it doesn't really matter, but like part of the feud is that a couple of Aldo's sons had like used the brand name to go off and open their own little stores that were mm. not really like cohesive with the Gucci brand. Mm-hmm. And Maurizio's like, fuck that. And then fighting back because he has the majority share through just mm-hmm. like people dying and him getting it. And then he, like, closed all these stores and kind of shut all that shit down and just kept taking it over and taking it over. And then the family's like, fuck you. That would be hard if, like, your last name was Gucci. Like, Mm -hmm. I can see it from both sides. I can see it from the brand side being like, Mm -hmm. fuck you, that's our brand. Mm -hmm. You can't open a store called Gucci. You can't just go open your own shop as a Gucci. the person being like, fuck you, it's my name. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. So, inherited the majority share, launches a legal war against his uncle Aldo for full control of Gucci. And a prosecution in this fight was led by city prosecutor Rudolph Giuliani. What? This motherfucker keeps popping up in our research. I yeah, know. that's it's weird. With Italian lawyer Domenico De Sol uh, representing the Gucci family. Just that was just a little anecdote that I thought was topical because, you know, Rudy Giuliani. Another quick anecdote. S- remember when Rudy Giuliani came to our high school? Yes. Yes, I do remember that. We now protested. I feel even grosser yeah. about it. I was it quote unquote than- reporting for the school newspaper. I absolutely was not, mm-hmm. but I met him and shook mm-hmm. his hand, and he has a horribly limp, clammy handshake. Oh, I hate mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Just so, just mm-hmm. a fun fact about Rudy Giuliani. He's a, an atrocious person. Limp fish. So Maurizio Gucci took over the company's direction, and in 1986, Aldo Gucci, who is 81, with only 16.7% of Gucci left in his possession, was sentenced to a year in prison for tax evasion. No. At 81. Oh, God. Aldo, no. Keep you have it, it good. Just pay your taxes. My right? God. Good Lord. So Maurizio's wife, Patrizia, saw a change in Maurizio after he took control of the family business and felt that she did not get the credit owed to her for being, like, the driving force behind his rise to stardom. So everybody just hates each other. Everybody hates each other, and Maurizio was, like, markedly less public-facing than other members of the Gucci family. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people felt like, oh, he's so meek and quiet. He's not, like, charismatic enough to be running this company. And when he met Patrizia, who is, like, this absolute Italian spitfire, and she was really, like, the mouthpiece Mm -hmm. and was making a lot of connections, and she was the charismatic one, and she was introducing him to all these people, and Mm -hmm. just, like, she definitely helped a lot. I am picturing... The woman in, like, season two of The Sopranos Mm -hmm. when he goes over there. For sure. Yeah. 
So she felt she didn't get the credit owed to her for being the driving force behind his rise to stardom, like I said. So from ABC News, quote, I pushed him so hard he became president of Gucci. Um, I was social. He didn't like to socialize. I was always out. He was always in the house. I was the representative of Maurizio Gucci, and that was enough. He was like a child, a thing called Gucci that had to be washed and dressed. Oh, 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 oh. That's yeah, harsh, <laughs> y'all. That, that, that is the harshest takedown. Oh, I'm well, is it? Because we'll get to it. Oh, my God. So reports indicate indicate that Patrizia wanted a larger stake in the business. She wanted credit for her influence on the brand and would come into the office and make a scene in front of Maurizio and the staff. She was fed up with this bullshit. And in 1985, he'd had an affair with a younger woman and the couple separated, but remained married, likely for the business assets. Mm-hmm. And this is from Forbes, quote, Reggiani, so that's Patricia said Gucci had left her suddenly, departing for what was supposed to be a short business trip to Florence. He never came back. Oh. Oh. Yeah. She learned of the abandonment, she said, from a family doctor. What? Yeah. Oh, that's... So their marriage is solid. Yep. (laughs) Solidly cold. But in 1991, Patricia had finally had enough and divorced Maurizio. The divorce left her with around, there are kind of fluctuating reports, and of course, this is all going to be, like, affected by inflation and what the currency exchange rate was at the time. Uh-huh. But the the best I could settle on in terms of averaging out a lot of these figures was she was making about $800,000 a year in alimony, which, like, yes, that is a fuck ton of money. Mm-hmm. But from the majority owner of the entire Gucci franchise, kind of weak sauce, especially because he cheated. Yeah. So that's that's kind of my opinion there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, he's a yeah. multi, multi-millionaire billionaire. Correct. So she also had a brain tumor the fall, the year after their divorce mm-hmm. that needed surgery. She needed brain surgery. And Maurizio just didn't even come to see her. Oh, like, my God. They had children together. Just, like, didn't show up. Whoa. So he also said to her, quote, do you know why our marriage failed? Because you fancied yourself the president. And here there is only one president. I am the captain now. Also, I cheated on you with a younger woman, which is so stereotypical and cliche. Right. So he clearly had some toxic traits. She clearly had some toxic traits. And their marriage was a goddamn mess. Yeah. There is a lot more family drama that I simply could not get into. There could literally be an entire season, multiple seasons of podcasts just about the Gucci family. Yes. Like, it's bonkers. Gucci so Gucci. Gucci Gucci. So that was as deep as I could Gucci-o go with that. And Gucci. just wanted to stick to the relevant parts. So with the company still struggling in the years following the divorce, Maurizio had to make some game time decisions to save the business. So, again, from Wikipedia, quote, in 1988, Maurizio Gucci sold almost 47.8% of Gucci to the Bahrain-based investment fund InvestCorp, which has owned Tiffany since 1984. So, like, they're legit, Mm -hmm. been around forever. Mm -hmm. He held on to the other 50%. 
So this sale was a move that Maurizio hoped would rectify some debts and downturn in business. But from 1991 to 1993, Gucci was still very much in the red, while Maurizio continued to spend large amounts of company money on their Milan and Florence offices. Mm-hmm. InvestCorp took over the remaining 50% of the company ownership in 1993, which for the first time since its founding in 1921, removed the Gucci family entirely from ownership of the company. Whoa. So he, they bought him out, basically. Yep. Because he was not good too at much in debt at that point. And he couldn't handle it anymore. And the franchise itself was in pretty big decline. Mm-hmm. And there was a an insurgence in the early 90s, especially of like some kind of cheaper made products that were just getting the Gucci name slapped on them, like mm-hmm. fast oh, fashion, yeah. mm-hmm. just because they were in the red. And then that was actually kind of perpetuating the cycle of being in the red. Right. And then pretty soon after Gucci was sold to Invest Corp. Pretty much everything in terms of design was put in the hands of Tom Ford, who still is, Mm. like, very much in charge of the Gucci design. Mm -hmm. And he is the one who really turned it around and brought Gucci back to what we know Mm. of it now. Interesting. So it's been through some turmoil, that's for sure. So this sale was also the last goodbye to Patricia's hope of becoming a CEO for the Gucci business and, like, being, you know, living her life as Mrs. Gucci, as she Mm -hmm. would refer to herself. Mrs. Gucci. Oh, my God. Mrs. Gucci. With the business now flourishing once more and out of the hands of toxic family ownership, another shocking moment would bring Gucci into the headlines. On March 27, 1995, Maurizio Gucci, no longer an owner but still like an executive of the business, took his daily walk to the Milan office. He lived nearby, making his commute through the streets of Milan quite convenient. Mm -hmm. But this walk to work would be... His last. This is so Italian. I love it. Yeah. And the investigation discovery, like, little show that I bought for $1.99 on Amazon so I could (laughs) get the timeline of events was worth its weight in gold. (laughs) So good. When he reached the lobby of the office, he was greeted by a masked gunman who shot and killed him right there on the front steps. Whoa. So very versace very versace So the assassin shot him three times. He fell to the floor and then shoots him a fourth time in the head to, like, confirm that he yeah. is dead. Yeah. The assassin then took off into the streets of Milan and disappeared. Some reports say that, uh, like, one of the doormen or somebody that was there um, had a shot fired at them, and it may have hit them, but it was not a fatal wound. Mm-hmm. So he left several witnesses. Mm-hmm. This happened, like, in the middle of the morning. Mm-hmm. This is not covert at all. Yeah, crazy. So first, this was making a statement. Literally. Mm-hmm. So first theories pointed to a mob execution, but further investigation ruled out organized crime, mostly because professionals pointed out that typically and like historically, mob executions are carried out very privately without right. witnesses that maybe a body will be left to be found. Right. But that these folks take every single precaution not to be seen. Yeah. And this took place in broad daylight, several witnesses, like we said. So given the drama within the Gucci family and the contentious split with Patrizia, eyes began looking at the family itself. Um, So many, like, cousins and other, you know, bought-out heirs had every reason to hate this guy. So they're diving into the family, but an investigation spanning two years kept looping back to a professional hit with no solid answer as to who ordered it. Mm -hmm. So... 
seeing as how the Gucci family had been at each other's throats for decades, with Maurizio making a lot of enemies out of cousins along the way, the pool to pick from was pretty deep, and police wiretapped all remaining members of the Gucci family and uh, looked into all of their bank records as well. Damn. And came up with nothing. Like, they're all clean. Whoa. Dang. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was so, going to say it's definitely Patrizia. Well, we'll get oh. to it. <laughs> um, so they looked into, like, the overhaul that Maurizio made, closing family stores, changing designers, etc. Still found that, like, all of this was kosher. And there was a deal that they looked into as well that he was making at the time of his death. Mm-hmm. with a casino business in Switzerland. And mm-hmm. so they were like, well, shit, this has to be it. Like, you're dealing with a casino. It's got to be an organized crime thing. But once again, nope. They went, like, super hard on all of the business partners in the casino deal, and there was not a single hole in their outfit, not a single link to organized crime, and the investigation was once again at a dead end. Mm-hmm. So with all business ties and blood relatives ruled out, Eyes fall back on ex-wife Patrizia. Oh, snap. We got there. <laughs> a wild card character that had been a confidant and close friend of both Patrizia and Maurizio was Pina Ariema. Pina, Pina Colada. Pina Pina is a psychic who reads tarot and tea leaves, and with Maurizio and Patrizia being very superstitious people... Mm. Pina complete or quickly became their most trusted advisor. Oh God, it's like a Rasputin situation. I mean, she was so close that she influenced decisions down to like the travel schedule of the couple. One time she kept Maurizio (laughs) off of a plane (laughs) to Tokyo because she'd had a vision that the plane had gone down. Amazing. That's legit. She saved his life. If we see Final Destination, yeah, we know to trust yeah. that instinct, but mm-hmm. also the plane did not go down, so there's that. Because, because he wasn't, he wasn't on, on it. on it. <laughs> no, you, I, I get it. It all tracks. Amanda, I, I get it. I get it. It's real. It's definitely real. Yeah, the plane didn't go down because he because wasn't of her. on it. Yep, for sure. So, when the couple split, Pina became Patrizia's dearest and deepest friend, a bond that bordered on obsession. So, like, they were going to each other for everything. They didn't have anybody else in the universe at this point. So, Pina seemed to add fuel to the fire of Patrizia's rage toward Mauricio after he had left her for the younger woman. Mm-hmm. And the day after Mauricio was killed, Patrizia showed up at the apartment that Maurizio, that Maurizio shared with his mistress who he intended to marry, and he kicked her out. She kicked her out of the apartment. So she shows up the next day Whoa. and is like, he's dead, you're gone, because you're not married, so you don't get shit. And then she moves in with her own mother and her daughters and, like, resumes the role of Mrs. Gucci. Just, like, taking it all back. Oh, This is my. so sloppy bananas. It's incredible. <laughs> like, this woman gives no fucks. <laughs> Oh, this was yeah. especially odd to her friends and family who willingly opened up to investigators about the hatred Patrizia had had for Maurizio. And she was not quiet about it. Like, she was very public about how much she despised Maurizio, especially after he left her. Yeah, and they're just like, just 
just get divorced. She frequently brought up having him killed, like, <laughs> casually over dinner. <laughs> yes. But the fact that she is the center of the investigation means nothing without hard evidence. So wiretaps, bank transfers, all these deals that they looked into, once again, they're all clean. So just saying you hate your ex-husband and you want to have him killed is not right. the same as being put away for having right. your ex-husband right. killed. I mean, yeah, if everybody was put in jail for saying oh, who they'd kill. Such paltry I'd comments. Be, right. <laughs> I'd be long incarcerated. Mm-hmm. So finally, an anonymous call comes in to an Italian, to Italian police claiming that he knew who killed Maurizio Gucci. So this guy, random guy calls and is like, here's the deal. I know who did it. So in a police interview, this informant reveals that four individuals were participants in the assassination plot, including a doorman at the building um, where Pina lived, a pizza delivery man, which like these poor bastards, evil genius, please do not work in the pizza industry. It's too dangerous. (laughs) It really is. A mechanic and, of course, psychic Pina Ariema. Mm-hmm. And now the plot begins to unfold because police are now wiring cars, phones, homes, like anything to capture conversations among these people about the murder. Mm-hmm. And even though this was two years later, conversations they did capture. Mm-hmm. So Pina in these conversations is revealed as the one who hired the three others to carry out this plot. It also came to light that these three men were still owed the money that they were promised for the killing. Mm. And finally, it Always comes out. Always pay your hit people. people. Yeah, yeah. Because if you don't, they turn around and yeah. give you up, which is exactly what happened. Right. But equally, don't pay them too early. Right. And don't let get the it job be traced. Done. More mm-hmm. fun facts here from the Wine and <laughs> yeah. Craig. To you gotta be. You gotta Here's be. how to hire a hitman. Or yeah, woman, right. or both or neither. Hit people. Exactly. Hit person. Hit folks. So finally it comes out who instructed Pina to take the lead on this plan. And of course, it's none other than Patrizia Reggiani. Patrizia immediately goes on the defense. And it's honestly a pretty brilliant like way that she talks about this. So yes. she completely owns up to the fact that she talked about hating her ex-husband and wishing that he was dead. Mm-hmm. She's like, yeah, of course I wanted to fucking kill him. He he cheated. He moved out. He left without telling me. Yeah. I had to find out from a family doctor during like a visit that yeah. he was not on a business piece trip. Of shit. Yeah. Um, but she staunchly claimed that she had never actually orchestrated a plan to do so and that her closest confidant, Pina, used her anguish against her in a plot to blackmail her for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm, and I wouldn't honestly, put it this track. Like, it's legit. Yeah. But investigators and eventually a jury did not buy Patrizia's version of events. Two years after Maurizio's murder, Patrizia enters the courtroom in a trial that would be sensational front page news for five grueling months. Whoa. At trial, prosecution laid out their version of events. Patrizia hired her closest confidant, Pina, to assemble a crack team and assassinate her husband. Pina turns to her trusted doorman, who then recommends another man, the pizza guy, who then finds the mechanic, who was the man who officially pulled the trigger. You know, I've never had a doorman, but I feel like once you find a good one, you do trust that person with your 
life. Okay. Oh, yeah. Literally my next oh, line. Sorry. <laughs> Honestly, this is why getting into a place with a doorman is so crucial mm-hmm. because they can get you set up with whatever you need. It's mm-hmm. truly a gift. Mm-hmm. FedEx, cocaine, yep. whatever. Yeah, they'll hold packages for you and find you your assassin. Yeah. Yeah. So Patricia promised them $300,000, which I couldn't confirm, like, is this, this had to have been total for them to split. Because that's really not a whole lot of money for murder. Like, even in 1991. No, I don't know. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean. I guess it's a lot. I guess my rate for murder would be higher. Mm. I feel like I've heard Mm -hmm. a lot of uh, murder for hire plots that were like 5, 10, 20,000. Yeah, I definitely, Mm -hmm. yeah, I've heard as low I've heard much lower. I guess. So when she never paid what was promised, they turned on her and ratted her out. The tapped conversations acquired by police gave them enough to bring these guys in, and they almost immediately rolled over upon interrogation. So basically, like, they tapped all this shit. This informant was like, oh, did you ever get that money? And they were like, no, we didn't ever get that fucking money. Mm -hmm. And so that was enough to confirm, like, okay, yeah, they had been promised money to do this. And then they bring them in for interrogation. And they're like, "Uh, yeah, we did it. And we want to get paid. (laughs) So... Can you imagine? <laughs> I mean, there were yeah, so many articles. We did it. Where's our money? Where's our money? <laughs> there were so many articles that were like these guys were not criminals. They were basically like regular it, people, it, like playing out as an Italian like slapstick comedy trio <laughs> for just how sloppy and dumb this whole thing was. And yet, it took two years to uncover because there was she hadn't paid, so there's no paper trail that links yeah. anyone. To these people, so it's like they're dumb, but it's also pretty brilliant. At so least maybe for my advice was wrong. Maybe don't, don't pay, pay your hit people, people, or wait. It's it, like you said, you got to wait, or you have to find a very removed third party mm-hmm. that's going to be willing to transfer those funds. Mm-hmm. It's just the the money is always going to give it away, whether mm-hmm. or not you've paid it. Mm-hmm. So then, our favorite type of evidence enters the courtroom: Patricia's diary. Yes. Dear diary, this is my favorite fucking part. Never of have a diary. Never have a diary. And don't use it like this. <laughs> so on the day her husband was murdered, Patricia wrote on one w- wrote one elegant word on the dated blank page. Quote Paradisos, which translates to paradise. <laughs> Dated March 27th or whatever, 1995, the day her husband was murdered, was just the singular word paradise (laughs) in Italian. I love this woman. In an interview, oh, I love her so much. I mean, she's a monster, but Mm -hmm. I adore her and Mm -hmm. she just keeps getting better. In an interview, Patrizia explains this entry by saying, quote, I was writing a book and I needed some words and Paradesos happened to be there on the I page. I needed some words. Oh, LOL, what? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they've got nothing. If that's they've all nothing. they've got, they've got nothing, which yeah. is what I would have screamed from mm. the witness stand. <laughs> except, Seriously, they don't have <laughs> Except anything. the entire team of hitmen saying they did it and this diary entry and then another it's all entry. Circumstantial. It, it is. is. But... After five months at trial, it starts to come to solidify. Another entry contained the line, quote, there is no crime that money cannot buy. (laughs) Okay. Pretty damning. That's Patricia. That's still technically coincident. (laughs) 
Yeah. yeah. Circumstantial. But as we've learned through the justice system, you can build a case off of pretty strong circumstantial evidence that includes, oh, I know. like, the mm-hmm. participants coming forward mm-hmm. and saying, yeah, I, I did it. why I feel like Where's defending this woman. She murdered her husband. I want to defend her, too. But he also seemed like a real pile, you know? He, he sucked. Was, he was a real piece of work. Yeah. And None of that condones what she did, but for entertainment purposes, I'm fucking here for it. <laughs> yeah. So she basically told the court in her own handwriting that she did it, or at least that's how the jury saw it. So November 3rd, 1998, election day. Probably not. I don't think there was an election year. Mm. I was too lazy to look. But Patricia and all four accomplices were found guilty on charges of murder and plotting to commit murder. Patricia was sentenced to 29 years, Pina to 25 years, the doorman, 26 years, and the pizza guy and the mechanic, 29 years. So despite appeals and citing Patricia's brain tumor for affecting her mental capacities, which, (laughs) no, it didn't. They caught it. They cut it out. You're fine. (laughs) (laughs) This did not work, though she was released in 2016 after serving only 16 years of her sentence for good behavior. Only 16 years. 16 years is a long time. It's a long time, but you had someone killed. Oh, so, I know. I know. You but know. Once again, but honestly, so fa- I have, she's so fabulous. I like her. She is so fabulous. And now we are reaching my second favorite part of oh. this story, which you're going to be upset about because I forgot to upload photos to the drive, but they will be on the drive shortly and on the blog, but they're on my laptop and not my desktop. And none of this matters, but you'll just have to Google it if you want to see it Kay. right now. But. Now she spends her days strolling the Milan Fashion District with her pet parrot on her shoulder. (laughs) Oh, she fully (laughs) lost her mind? I don't think she's fully lost her mind. I think she's fully leaned into being like the murderous fashion queen who now just wanders Milan with a fucking parrot. Because why not? She's embraced this. She's embraced it. Oh, yeah. Of her time in the San Vittore prison in Milan, Patrizia says, quote, I think I'm a very strong person because I survived all these years in captivity. I slept a lot. I took care of my plants. I looked after Bambi, my pet ferret. You get plants and ferrets in prison? In in Milan prison. (laughs) I I like, her prison is my quarantine. You swap a ferret for a rabbit. I slept a lot. I pet my pet rabbit. I took care of my plants. Like, what kind of prison lets you have a pet ferret? Because sign they me probably up, have and Wi-Fi so and Animal Crossing too. Fucking probably. Damn. She still has hopes to return to the Gucci brand, saying <laughs> that she is and always will be Mrs. Gucci. Okay. When asked what she would do if she could see Maurizio again, she replied, "Quote: If I could see Maurizio again, I would tell him that I love him because he is the person who has mattered most to me in my life." However, when asked how she thought her ex-husband would respond, she answered, I think he'd say the feeling wasn't mutual. (laughs) Because you had him murdered. (laughs) One thing I know is I am deaf looking forward to the Ridley Scott film about this case that is currently in pre-production with Lady Gaga to play Patrizia Reggiani. I just got... Full body chill. Yeah. Lady Gaga. Oh, no. Lady Gaga. Oh, my God. Yes. 
And <laughs> that's oh my god, my case. Well done, nice, so juicy. There was so much more. I could have gone on for days, but obviously we had to wrap it up for time. Yeah. But my god, yeah. My god. Well, Thank you for all of this. My, oh my Gucci, oh Gucci. This was probably <laughs> the case that took me the longest to write. It took me like two days because there was so much stuff I wanted to put in mm-hmm. and couldn't. And then it was so hard to just find a timeline because it was so all over the place. Mm -hmm. And then as I feel like I'm getting to the meat and potatoes, we've got a fucking psychic (laughs) and we've got a parrot (laughs) and we've got a ferret and a diary. And I just, it's, I cannot wait to see this movie. It's going to be so So I love Ridley Scott movies too. Yeah. It's going to be amazing. I can't wait. I also would like to point out in your um, sources at the bottom of your notes, you put something about... Keith Raniere's seduced interview. (laughs) Okay, so there are, this has happened several times where I will pull a source, Mm -hmm. but that website goes from one article you scroll directly into another article. And so the link doesn't, Copy properly. I thought yeah. you. Ac- I thought you just had that open because obviously the Keith Raniere news of yesterday, as we record yeah. this episode, and I read, I read it, but it was like scrolled. It was attached to an yeah. article about this. Gucci I get murder. it. It just jumped out. That's so annoying. And poor, poor Andrea. <laughs> Hi, has love to you. fix it. Who helps has to fix it when she's doing our website updates? And I'm like, Sorry. I don't know. Click it, scroll. I guess figure it out. I was drunk when oh, I wrote no. this. <laughs> also, you need a raise. I'm so sorry. I'm always drunk when I wrote this. Anyway, all right. All right. Well, thank you, thanks. everyone. Yes. Special thanks to Andrea. Special mm-hmm. thanks to Gucci O Gucci and to and that to John and to John and to the ferret and to Daisy <laughs> and to Daisy and our fan picker. And, and our oh, fan right. picker, Jeannie, Jeannie O'Brien. This mm-hmm. was just a fun. It was fun. Of fun times. Yeah. Thank this was you. a really this good a topic. Good I loved Thanks, it. Thanks, Jeannie. So thank yeah. you so much. Okay. Right. We right. will see you next week. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to Wine and Crime. Our cover art is by Kala Yip. Music by Phil Young and Corey Wendell. Editing by Jonathan Camp. Check out our website and blog at wineandcrimepodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at wineandcrimepod. If you have questions, answers, or recommendations to share, email us at wineandcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, basically wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It is the best way to spread the word. If you'd like to show your support and get a shout out on air, visit our Patreon page to keep this podcast and the wine flowing. Cheers. Cheers.